verse 17 reads this way, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We know that you inspired every word of it through the apostle Paul. You used him to write. You wrote through him. You wrote through his character and person and his experiences, but every word was yours. And yet, we're overwhelmed as you took a sinner like Paul, one who he openly called himself a chief of sinners, and wrote such amazing truth, Lord, to remind us that, yes, life is difficult at times, but you set examples in front of us, you give us warnings, but ultimately, in the end, we will be with you. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, strengthen us, warn us today. And may we be challenged when we walk out these doors. So Lord, we ask that your spirit would take the word of God and press it, burn it, pierce it upon our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What a chapter, uh, chapter three of Philippians. It's one of those gold mines, like most of scripture, you just keep mining and finding truth. As I snuck in time here and there this week to study this text, I became overwhelmed with it. I thought, oh Lord, I could preach message after message, just verse after verse through here, the richness of it. Because I think it's Paul, and of course the Spirit speaking through Paul, but Paul relating everything he has been through. He's relating these deep truths of experience in this life. The the ups and downs in a sense of this progressive sanctification of growing in Christ. He has deep concern for the church. He worries about the church. He fears for them that they would stray. That they would become earthly minded instead of heavenly minded. And so he writes in such a way that he is trying to capture our attentions, capture us to understand the ultimate goal that God has for his son's church. That's why he starts it out and says, look, I have all this list of things, Hebrew of Hebrews and Pharisee and all those, they're worthless. He doesn't want man to follow man in that sense. And he denies any of it as being his own righteousness And he says, I'd only want to be found in Christ's righteousness. And boy, that's the saved. Trust me, if you show up with any ounce of your own righteousness before the throne, you don't come in. You only must be found in the righteousness of Christ. 
And Paul sets that very clear, and this is why we believe in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone. Then he turns his attention to running this race and remind us last week that he says, I'm not yet perfect yet. Don't don't look to me. I'm I'm not perfect yet in this unredeemed humanness. I'm still striving for that upward calling. But then he reminds us that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are perfect. Not in your religious walk every day, but perfect in our standing through Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded of that, right? We need to be reminded that when God looks at us, he sees us in his son, perfectly cleansed. The Bible calls us blameless and holy. If you think of yourself only human this week, do you feel blameless or holy? Probably not. But when you see and understand from the scriptures that God has made you perfect in his son, that's what drives our worship, that's what drives our lifestyle now. And that's what Paul's after. He's after Christians to run after the prize, to run to the end of the tape. And there's a great finish. There's a great celebration. As Darren alluded, we had many celebrations this week. It seemed like I went from celebration to celebration. And and, uh, kind of the end of the road of one part of life, right? High school graduations, college graduations. We have a seminary graduation next week. Kind of the end of that, that point right there. But soon after some of those times that we hit, we must get our heads back up and get running. Because one who stays still is a target. (laughs) And we run again. And so we encourage our young people, just as we encourage ourselves, to follow after Christ. I'd entitled the sermon this, Pursue Christ and Long for His Return. Pursue Christ and Long for His Return. I think they both, those statements, have uh, a good view of this text. So let's unpack it here. Let me give you three thoughts this morning to look at and think about as we look at it. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So our first thought is follow those who follow Christ. Follow those who follow Christ. And isn't that what he's saying here? Brethren, follow my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. There is an example that believers should set. Paul often says this. He says, follow my example. He says, Timothy, follow my example. Now, only somebody who is going in the right direction can make that statement. Would you want to tell somebody when you're living in sin and doing things contrary to the word of God and say, hey, why don't you follow me? See, we don't do that. We kind of sneak away when we don't want to confess. But when we are following Christ, we should set examples. It's fascinating here that he uses the word brother. It's the third time he's used it in the book of Philippians here. It's, a, it's an endearing term. It's not of just Jewish people. And it's of the saved. He says, brethren, I want you to follow me. And I want you to follow those who are in Christ. In essence, is what he's saying. Paul's already denounced all his religious accomplishments, right? He's now told the church that he's not perfect. And then he tells the church to be, and here's the idea of the word here, where it says join in following my example, is be a fellow imitator. Be a fellow imitator. And we remember that Paul clearly is not setting himself up as as the great one. 1 Timothy chapter 
1, 12 through 16, right in that area, probably 30 years after his conversion, he says, look, I'm the chief of sinners. I, I, I persecuted the church. I, I, I was one who blasphemed and was a violent aggressor. But he says, I was shown mercy. See, this is where now, when you understand mercy, now things begin to change. In fact, he goes on to say in that text, and he says, he was basically my translation of it, God made me a trophy of his grace. The most violent aggressor, the most blasphemous one of the holy God, God saved, and he's made me a trophy of his grace. See, that's the idea when he says, follow me. Let your life be a trophy of the grace of God. I belong to him. I'm on his mantle. He reached down and saved us. So Paul is asking the church to follow him as an imperfect sinner, but one who pursues Christ-likeness. And if you, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have been perfected in Christ, are you leading somebody? See, we all have people that are looking at us. If you have, you're a parent in here, you have children who are watching you. And they know all of our examples, good and bad. We have people on the job, we have neighbors, co-workers, so on, who are all looking to us. Where are we leading? If they were here today, and we asked them, what's their example like? What would they say of you? Would there be any resemblance of Christ? Would they be able to say, uh, he, he loves this Jesus? This person that he seems to bow the knee to or she seems to bow the knee to. See, Paul has already confessed his lack of human perfection. And he says, look, throughout the scriptures, he says, I know what it means to be tempted and I know God won't tip you beyond what you can handle. So trust him. See, that's a follower of Christ. That's a follower of Christ. says, man, I know I'm going to go through temptation. I know the Lord isn't going to put me through more difficult things than I can handle. See, that there, that kind of speech and that kind of attitude, people say, I think I can follow that person. They're not puffing up their own strength. They're relying on God to get them through things. I want what they have. See, Paul knew suffering. He had suffered greatly. He knew heartbreak. Some of the hardest things. Into 2 Timothy, he says, Demas has forsaken me for the world. Can you imagine writing that down? Spirit of God pins that. Demas has forsaken me. And it wasn't just Demas. It was many others who forsaken him. Men and women that he had shared the gospel with turned on him. The heartbreak that he had. He knew what that was. He also knew life's struggles. He knew disappointments. He knew the danger of pride. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 that God gave him that thorn in the flesh so that his pride would not overtake him. Wow. He knew the dangers of those things. But he knew how to put sin to death and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the one who you can follow because they're leading you to the right person. They're leading you to Jesus. Paul's writing are the clearest on progressive sanctification. 
He knew how to die to self and he knew how to follow the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And progressive sanctification is a kind of a little bit of a roller coaster ride, right? Seems hopefully to flatten out as we get older in the faith. But some days we turn our eyes from the Lord and then it's at the bottom of that swoop that we come to repentance and we say, oh Lord, I am seeking earthly things and I have no joy right now. Will you forgive me? And you're reminded of the cross and you begin to walk after him again. These are the type of language that Paul uses even in our last text. I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on. Forgetting the things that are in the past that Satan loves to hold me down, to remind me. Putting those things in the past. Finding again the renewal of life that God gives you in forgiveness. And pursuing him. Verse 17 reminds us that we don't just follow me, but Keep your eyes on those who keep their eyes on Christ. It's in the present tense. Present tense. Watch those who are watching Christ. We're all going in the same direction. See, churches need Christ-centered people within them. We often look at elders and deacons as the example of the flock, and this is true This is why those pastors or elders or deacons who fall into continuous sin, they disqualify themselves because they cease to be an example. But but Christ-like examples are not just for the leadership. They're moms and dads. They're grandparents. They're men and women who work in the trenches of the world. It's for all of us to be this Christ-centered people. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul told Timothy, he said, be diligent to present yourself, a workman unashamed, unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of the truth of the word of God, rightly dividing it. What does the word of God say? I want to do that. I want to do that. You know, just think if we all did that daily. Well, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about raising children? What does the Bible say about workplace of the Christian? My neighbors, my thought life. I want to do that. Oh, the joy that we would probably experience. Second, a weeping and warning over the enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 18 and 19. There's a turn here now. There's a warning here. But there's also a sorrow over it. Look at verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, literally belly there. I think the ESV translates that right in there. And whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. There are several striking thoughts in these first two verses. It's just the first word, many. Do you see that in your Bible? For there are many who walk this way. Hmm. Is that true? Is there many that have an appetite for idolatry? Because that's what this amounts to? These are religious people he's talking about, right? They're enemies of the cross, so they must know what the cross is. They must understand what the Christian believes. The Bible says there are many 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 through 
15 says this, for such men are false apostles, plural, deceitful workers, plural, distinguish, them, distinguish themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants, plural, are distinguished themselves as servants of unrighteousness. Deeds are according to the flesh. Look with me at first. John chapter 4. I want to show you a text here that reminds us of this truth. And John is warning the church from the island of Patmos. He has been banished from his beloved church. He is the last of the apostles. And he writes to the church and warns them of a very similar truth that Paul is warning them of. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Hmm. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hmm, really? Many? Is this still true? I think it is. It's hard to tell some days because they're false prophets. That means they're disguised in some way. They claim to be somebody they are not. Verse 2, but this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. Well, that eliminates some of the false teachers. They reject Jesus as God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, from, is not from God. This, the Spirit of Antichrist, and now listen to this, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. In fact, in verse Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, there are many Antichrist even in the world now. And, and they're slippery, brothers and sisters. They're slippery. They may even talk about the cross. They may even talk about Jesus. But they don't believe it in their own lives and they're always adding something to it. Do this, get this, and Jesus. Jesus this, and plus this, and, 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 and if you listen to them, and, and you read their stuff, or you follow them at any time, pretty soon Christ is just obliviated in the message. He's just not there. And they're dangerous. Acts chapter 20. Paul is leaving. He's headed on his way to Rome, and he stops in Miletus, and there he meets with the elders of the church of Ephesus that he started and most likely trained these elders. And he tells them in verse 28, be on guard for yourself, <laughs> elders, and for the flock of God, among whom which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's a calling there to shepherd, to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, and I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That is an ugly picture if you've ever been around livestock. When the wolves and the wild dogs get in, they'll rip the throats out of the young ones so quickly and never bat an eye. He warns them, this is his church. Paul started this church Paul trained these men. And we know when we read the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, that Ephesus church struggled. And they had false teachers among them. And as soon as he left, that's what happened. And so, 
There's a warning here. Now also, look at the next thought back in our text. And this is very important. Paul is identifying that the, there are many there, but notice how he says this. And this is striking. I had many conversations. I actually asked the elders about this, and, and Michael and I had a lengthy talk about this little phrase here. And now tell you even weeping. Hmm. He says, now I tell you this weeping, present tense. Some of the elders began to act like wolves and they broke Paul's heart. They said they were one thing and turned out to be another. And here in our text, Paul speaks of his own weeping in a present tense. He was sensitive and he was passionate for the plight of sinners. And we see that in here. He hurts over people who distort the gospel. And just think for a little bit. If somebody adds or takes away from the gospel, what does that potentially do to the hearer? Could damn them forever. Somebody comes away and say, well, it's Jesus plus my church attendance. It's Jesus plus keeping this and keeping that and not eating this and not doing that. Just think what that happens. And someone says, well, yes, I believe in the justification of Jesus, but I also believe in the justification of my works. And you go, for us, that we hear that and our ears go up, right? Whoa, 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 hold on. But that is being taught constantly throughout evangelical churches. And someone says, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe you must do this, this, and this. So Paul's heart is, is heavy here, I believe. He weeps over this. He weeps over the plight of sinners. You know, I, I purposely read, when I read Revelation 21 there, I was going to read 1 through 7. Then I read 8. And I said, oh no, Lord. The reality of hell is real. I need to read that. Because there is a place of a flame that doesn't quench, a worm that does not die. Jude calls it the black of blackness. Hell is real, the scriptures teach it, it's eternal, and when we don't weep over the fact that people will go there, I don't think we fully grasp grace at times. Paul himself Weeped over his own people. Romans chapter 9, 1 and 2. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and increasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. That's the Jewish people. My kinsmen according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 2, 4 says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote with you many tears so that you would be made sorrowful, that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Wrote a very hard letter to the, to the Corinthian church. See, I believe Paul was also brought to tears over the church in Philippi. He loved this church. He knew what, what false teachers, what chaos false teachers could do. 
And so I think the weeping is not only for the lost, but it's also for the church. He, he loves the church. Remember, the, I read this, I think, last Sunday in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It lists all the things that he went through and the beatings and the mockings and, and the shipwreck and snake bit and all of those things. And then at the end, he says, and the constant concern for the church. See, true shepherds never get away from the concern with the church. You go to bed thinking and praying and you wake up thinking and praying about the church. You think and hurt over those who are straying. See, Paul wept over this. He loved the Philippi church and he knew the dangers. He already told them in chapter three, verse two, beware of the dogs and the, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumstances. And I think doubtlessly he wept over their eternal fate of the false teachers. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians. I want to show you this text real quick. I'm running out of time, but there's a couple of texts. I just want to make sure you get your finger in and see these texts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6. For, uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians, thank you. Um, one, that's what happens when you jot it down wrong in your text, in your notes. First Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. <laughs> I will make that correction in these notes. As I'm looking at the text I want to read. Second Thess 1, 6 and following, look at this. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Uh-oh. Retribution. We don't have to do retribution for those who afflict us. There's one who says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. So when you get, when you get persecuted, when you get judged unjudgedly, you can leave it to the Lord because there's one who's gonna take care of it. Verse six, verse seven. And give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will reveal from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire and deal out retribution to those who do not obey God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and for the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints, that's us on the day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Oh, that's a great verse. For our testimony to you was believed. And to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in you, that's us, and, and you and him, according, look at this, to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Not according to your own strength, but according to his grace. Now, turning back to our text, let's deal with this little phrase called enemies of the cross. You can't get around the text, it's right there at the end of 18. This is what all the weeping and the warning is about. It's about those who are enemies of the cross. We've read how God is going to take care of that, but look at the description of this. These are those that take away, they discredit, they don't care about the finished work of Christ. This includes the dogs and the false circumcision and the evil workers that Paul has spoken about, but it includes men like the rich young ruler. Do you realize that? The one who came and said, I've done all these things for my youth. 
They're enemies of the cross. Includes the Gnostics that John was dealing with that said, oh, well, sin is in our flesh and, and we're, we're rescued in our spirit over here so we can sin over here and it doesn't affect us and we, don't, you know, we really don't care. Includes the antinomianist. That's the one who doesn't concern himself with the law of God. He just says, ah, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Sin, because grace will abound. I think it deals with the apathetic one who calls themselves a believer. One who does not take their walk with Christ serious, their role within the church serious. They don't see themselves as a vital part of the church. I think it possibly could include many people. Remember the disciples are walking with Jesus and he's talking about tares among the wheat and, and the disciples say, should we take them out, Jesus? Should we pull out the tares? And Jesus says, no, they'll always be among us. If you tear them out, you'll pull wheat with them. But I will separate them in the end. And I think that lends to that great verse where Jesus says in the end in the judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. What an awful day that will be for those who played the game of Christianity. Who never truly bent their knee to him and followed him who never said Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You are the only way to the Father, Jesus. I bend my knee to you. I relent of any righteousness I have. And I come only, only through your grace and mercy and your righteousness. That's why we sing so often in Christ alone. Think about the two thieves that hung on the cross. What different men in the end. One man looks and says, Oh, you've done all these other things. Why don't you get us off? What have you done for me now? Type of follower. Big movement within Christianity. Go to church, get what you want. That's what the main teachers are teaching today around the globe. You go over and see our friends around the world and see what America has brought to the mission field. It'll break your heart. Prosperity gospel has gone farther than ours. In many cases. But then there's another thief. He's us. Isn't he? You don't deserve this, Jesus. You are innocent. I am getting what I deserve. Will you remember me? That's a prayer of a saved person. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, pray that prayer. Will you remember me? I have nothing to offer you. I'm a bloody mess hanging over here. Will you save me? Will you invite me into your kingdom? See, when he talks about enemies of the cross, he's not talking about that piece of wood. Everybody hated that piece of wood. When you looked at it, it said in death. He's talking about the reality of what the cross all represents. The one-way ticket to God. Nothing added. That's what that cross represents. The finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about enemies to. Not just some wooden pole stuck in the ground that they killed people on. Everybody's an enemy of that, right? Of death. We don't like seeing people die. But he's talking about something greater than that. He's talking about the rejection of Christ. And in verse 19, he starts to delineate what the problem is. Verse 19, he says, whose end is destruction. They live their lives to this end. 
And that means you get everything you can get now because you don't think about the future. You don't believe what Christ is going to accomplish. And so your end is destruction and you live that way. And that's the end of people when they're enemies of the cross. And believe me, we have to understand these are... These could be very religious people. I think our minds sometimes go to the Romans 1 group. I think this is the Romans 1, the Romans 2, which is the moralist, and the Romans 3, which is the religious person. I think he's speaking of all of those people. And you and I would be in this group if it wasn't for the grace of God. See, in the end, there's eternal death. Worm doesn't die. Flame doesn't quench. Weeping and gnashing don't go away. These are real passages. Jesus himself said that. Oh, we should weep over the lost. Next phrase, he says, whose God is their appetite, literally their belly. This is a a sensual impulse. Whatever I desire. We can get our minds around this a little bit. Anybody ever had a diet in here? (laughs) And then you go to our graduation party. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And people are shoving cake and ice cream and everything you know you shouldn't be eating and your stomach's growling, Right? It's desiring something. But if you're a good dieter, and you want to take care of the temple at some level, not an idolatry type of level, you say, you know what? I ain't going to pass on that. I didn't do very well yesterday, um, but (laughs) confessions need to be made. But you know what I'm talking about. You can't say no because that's your idol. There's an internal drive. There's an internal drive to worship yourself. And, and you can't stop it. And you've got to get rid of people who talk like this. <laughs> because you're pushing my idol over, man. They bow down to all kinds of impulses. And, and don't just think it's this immoral group. This is maybe religious groups. Hey, look, we don't eat this. We, we definitely don't dress like you people. We fast and we pray. And if you want to be in the kingdom, follow me. Look, that's just as much as an idol as the person who is in the gutter soaked in his own immorality. Both of them have a God of their own appetite. Jude 4, verse 4 says this, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ouch. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our, our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They look at grace as a license. This is why you know they're not saved. There's a license. Oh, great. I got Jesus in my back pocket. I'm going to go... Do whatever I want now. Finally, he says, who glory in their shame. Actually, two more things. I don't have time to go into this, but one of the really difficult passages is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 and 2. Paul rebukes the church because they are allowing a man to live in abject immorality. He rebukes them heavily that he would allow the church of Christ to have this in their monks and not do anything about it. They actually knew about it. Romans 1 verse 32 at the end of that long text it says the immorality preys wickedness. They glory in the shame. 
Many times, boys and, and other young men that I've discipled through the years that particularly play on ball teams and are in the world in that aspect, I said, look, once they find out you're Christians, they will long to get you to do what they do. It'll make them feel better about themselves. If you, if you can get somebody who holds to some standards because they love a Jesus or love their Christ, their Savior, they will come after you and they will long to get you to participate with them in glory and their shame. You all know what I'm talking about because I see heads nodding in here. This is why they're enemies of the cross. We look at the cross and go, oh, how could I do that to my Jesus? I will not compromise. I may lose friends. I may lose family. Some of us in here. But I will not compromise on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I won't be braggadocious. I won't be arrogant. But I won't compromise. Then finally, he says, who set their minds on earthly things? James 4 says, you adulteress, you do not... You, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Boy, that's a question you gotta ask. What side of the cross am I on? I say I'm on one side, but yet I act as an enemy of the cross with my own, my own works. Now, if you watch NASCAR, there's a commercial that I love. There's a guy named Carl Edwards. He goes into like a little kid's classroom and he starts to talk about losing sponsors. And the little girl goes, yeah, well, you lose sponsors. You know, people don't like you anymore. And he goes on, he says, yeah, you lose sponsors and money and all this stuff. And, and he says, but if you win, then they come back and you have lots of friends. And I said, he goes, he goes, you brought me down, but you brought me right up. Let's get ice cream. I'm driving. You ever seen that one? I love that commercial. I like this in this verse. It says, you know, we go through these enemies of the cross, and I'm studying this, and I'm, and I'm almost a little bit spiritually depressed, <laughs> thinking, oh, Lord, how many people who call you their Savior actually possibly may be enemies of the cross. And then I come to verse 20 and 21, and he brings us right back up. And these are amazing verses. And I want to finish with these verses with this third thought. A heavenly home, a transformed body, and an all-powerful Savior. Notice what he says. For our citizenship, he's turned the corner now, we're on the way back up, is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion strength of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You've heard it said, um, and I don't like the saying, but you've heard it said, he or she is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. I think Paul would disagree with you. Truly heavenly minded people are very, very earthly good. Because they know where they're going. And they want you to come with them. I think we should be heavenly minded. And I think that's what he's after. Our motivation must be completely Christ-centered. 
So that means we focus on Christ. We're, we see him as one. We're seated above, Colossians chapter three. We're seated with him. That's our position. Our eyes are on him. Remember the last description of the enemies of Christ? Their eyes are set on the things of earth. Colossians chapter three says, set your eyes on the things of heaven, of Christ, where he's seated. And this is what he wants you to do. He wants you to focus on these things. And if we truly long for Christ's return, we will also long to be found reflecting him in our lives. You can't say, oh, I want Jesus to come back and live like the devil. It just doesn't work. And Paul says it doesn't work. Some of these terms are phenomenal here in verse 20. Um, citizenship. The Greek word, it's, it's only used here in the scriptures. There's a, there's a reference to a noun that kind of goes along with it a little bit. But, but this particular word has the idea of an official status of somebody. It's where one's name is recorded as residing. I like that. What's your address? 777 heaven. No junk mail. I mean, it, it's, it's where we are at. Jesus said in John 18, 36, when, when Pilate was pounding him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And if it were, you'd have to deal with my servants who'd be taking it. Powerful statement. So the Bible says our names are recorded in heaven, our saviors in heaven, our fellow saints, our loved ones are in heaven right now. If you've lost a loved one who knew Jesus, they're in heaven right now. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our reward is in heaven. Our treasure's in heaven. Our eternality is in heaven. All described in scripture, verse after verse. And even now, Colossians 3 says, you're positioned in heaven. Ephesians 2, 6 says, 6, 2, 6 says this, he raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's where you're at. So in some sense, we live in a heavenly kingdom now. There's a spiritual kingdom we're a part of. We're with the Lord. But we set our eyes on that. I thought of Philippi. I thought, Lord, Philippi understood this. They were called Roman citizens, but they didn't live in Rome. They had all the benefits to Rome. They had everything that Rome could offer them, but they didn't live there. That's you and I. We don't live in heaven right now, but we have all the benefits that heaven has to offer us in a lot of ways. We belong to God. Our treasures are our reward is our inheritance. All our fellow loved ones who knew Jesus are there right now. And that's where our Savior is. Look, another mark of a true citizen is one who eagerly awaits the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a good test. This is a good litmus test for us. Do I eagerly wait for Jesus to return? Oh, not right now, Lord. I remember being a young person who wanted to get married first. Looking back, as great as marriage is, 30, 330 months now, married. 330 months. I counted the other day. You should eagerly await the Savior, right? That's what is what it's about. When Jesus ascended, the angel told the, uh, the disciples, he said, look, he's coming back the same way he left you. 
Jesus has said, don't be, in John 14, don't be, let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's an equality there. In my Father's house are many places. If it were not so, I would, would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself. And where I am, you're going to be there. Oh, what a great promise. He's coming. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 you are not lacking any gifts, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1.10, wait for his son from heaven, whom he was raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescued us from the wrath to come. Romans 8.23, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Wow. See, this motivation causes us to pursue Christ. And you, look, we don't want to get to heaven and go, Lord, I got in by the skin of my teeth. An old saying my dad used to say. And I found it finally in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when the life that we have lived here is pitched into the furnace. <laughs> if it's wood, hay, or stubble, it's smoke, baby. It's all comes out. One preacher said, I think it's going to be smoky in heaven for a little while. Because a lot of what we thought we did for the cry for our Lord just went up in flames. But the rest of the text says we had to live our lives so that... Gold and silver and precious stones are the rewards, and I think this is what we cast back to our Lord someday. So John warns us in Second John 1, 18, watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but that you receive the full reward. Oh, brothers and sisters, pursue Christ. Eagerly long for him. Finally, verse 21 he said, who will transform our body of our humble state into conformity with his body. I'm out of time, but just think for just a minute. We kind of are imprisoned in our unredeemed humanness right now. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this very carefully. I, we, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're truly a saved person. You are positioned in Christ and you are fully perfected in Christ. But while on this earth, we struggle with, I think Dr. MacArthur came up with this one time, I heard him say, our unredeemed humanness. In a sense, we're kind of imprisoned in it till the Lord lets us go. Some of our brothers and sisters these last few years have been let go from that. And we're with the Lord now. But we wait for this transform, transformation of this body. And, and be released from what Paul called this body of death in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. And believers who die before Christ's return are temporary, temporarily separated from their physical bodies with their spirit, their soul. And the body goes into the grave, but the soul goes immediately to be with Christ. And the scriptures say that. They tell us that absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. And then in heaven, the Bible tells us that the saints in heaven have received perfection. Listen to this verse, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. The general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I love that term. That's the other kind of verb that we see about our citizenship. Then he says, and to God, the judge of all. Then listen to this last phrase. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Ed, he's on my mind today. Because I see you sitting there, Shirley. He, his spirit is perfect with the Lord. And anybody else who put their faith into Jesus that has died now. And God will match their souls with their new resurrected body someday. And they will be like Christ. So those who live from Pentecost to the 
return of Christ when we meet him. Some refer to this as a rapture in the air. We'll have their souls joined with their new heavenly bodies. They're already rejoicing. They're already recognizable. They're going to have a new body. Christ will bring that to the end of the church age. and He'll turn his attention back to his own people. There is another group. You have Old Testament believers and possibly these who go through the tribulation. When he returns to set his kingdom up, he will join their souls with their bodies at that time. Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20 allude to that. But here's the main point. All believers, one way or another, receive new bodies. It says he'll transform our humble bodies. The word is lowly, kind of worthless (laughs) is the word. Sorry. You should go to the gym a little bit. But don't worship the rag. You're not taking it with you. Be careful of that. But we're going to get new bodies. And you go, well, how is he going to do this? Look at the end of verse 21. By the exertion of the power that he has, that he has been even able to subject all things. Hubatasso, make into submission, bring into subjection, bring under his control. Christ has placed all creation under his own control. And if he can do that, if he can hold the planets from not crashing into each other or the earth slowly spinning away from the sun and we all freeze to death or move to the sun and all burn up, if he can hold all of what you see out there in his hands, he can certainly give you a body like his son. And he will do that. And that's where Revelation 21 comes in. No more weeping. No more pain. No more sorrow. And he will be our God and we will be his people. And we'll be on the earth together. When he sets up that new kingdom. And then we'll go into heaven forever with him. And we'll worship him. So let me close with one thought. And then we're going to do communion. Follow example of those who follow Christ. Some of you don't have enough godly friends in your life. True lovers of Christ. You'll know them, they're humble. Some of you don't have enough of those in your life. You need to get more. Follow those who follow Christ. Weep and be warned over enemies of the cross. There's, there's those who are enemies out there. Weep over them because they're going to go to hell if they don't repent. But also realize they attack the church. And be wary about them. And then finally, set your hope on the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this text. I feel I have not done it justice, Lord. There is so much more to teach on, so many truths to, to reconcile and to understand and to grasp, Lord. But Father, we, we've seen it. We, we know that you want us to follow you. We want, you want us to follow your son and people who follow your son. We, we see the warning and the weeping over the lost. And we certainly, Lord, we certainly understand that as hard as it is for our, our lowly minds and bodies to get around, that you are going to transform us someday. And we pray that you would do that for your glory, Lord. The Bible pray, it says that we are to pray for the kingdom to come, Lord. And so help us eagerly await you. Give us this great reminder as we take communion now of how this all came about through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.